Mark chapter 14, if you'll find that in your Bible today, Mark chapter 14, again, good to see you today and part of the service today. I have a few things I want to announce, but I'll announce those at the end of the service, Mark chapter 14, and we're going to take up where we left off last week. Jesus spent, we don't know how long, how many hours, a great deal of time with his disciples in the upper room. Uh, one of the Gospels tells us that when they gathered there, it was already nighttime. It's an important thing to know. And uh, soon after they began their meeting, Jesus identified uh, Judas as the betrayer. They observed the fat Passover meal, and then something that's not recorded in either, another, either of the Gospels, but it's recorded in John's Gospel, is Jesus gave them this lengthy teaching, uh, not only the lengthy teaching, but a demonstration in John chapter 13, where he washed the disciples' feet. Judas was there when that occurred. He washed the disciples' feet, and he talked to them about servanthood, being a servant. And then John chapter 14, he tell, gave him that great passage, and, and my father's house are many mansions, if it were not so, I would have told you. And then the, what John recorded in John chapter 15, which was referred to this morning in Sunday school, I am the vine, you are the branches. And uh, that great passage in John 15 about abiding in him. And, and um, then John chapter 16, we talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's expedient for you that I go away, for if I don't go not away. I just say all this to say all this was taking place that night, late in the night, after they observed the Lord's Supper. And he gives this teaching to them. And then that beautiful, lengthy prayer in John chapter 17 where Jesus prayed and even said these words, I pray not for these only, but for those who will believe on me through thy word. All this takes place with that group of 11 people there in the upper room. And then they left the upper room late, late at night, but before dawn. They left the upper room, crossed the... Kidron Valley and went into the Garden of Gethsemane and on the Mount of Olives. We talked about that last week. So just setting the stage for where we are. And Jesus prayed there in that peaceful and yet agonizing place. And sweat as it were, Luke says, great drops of blood. Agonizing, taking the cup to accept the bitter cup. And we ended last week on verse 42, and let's start reading there. Let's stand together, please, and look into your Bible as I read verse 42 and following. Jesus said, rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand, and immediately... While he yet spake, while these words were leaving the mouth of Jesus, cometh Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude, with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And he that betrayed him had given them a token, a signal, a sign saying, this is what he said, Judas said, Whomsoever I shall kiss, 
that same as he. Take him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he was come, he goeth straightway to him. He being Judas, goeth straightway to him, Jesus, and saith, Master, Master, and kissed him. And they laid their hands on him, on Jesus, and took him. And one of them that stood by drew a sword and smote a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We can be confident he probably wasn't trying to cut off his ear. He just missed the whole head. He cut off his ear and Jesus answered and said unto them, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you took me not. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. They all forsook him and fled. And there followed him a certain young man, having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young man laid hold on him. The young men, excuse me. The young men laid hold on him, the young man. And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Let's ask the Lord to bless today as we look at his word together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that it is, that it provides for us. And Father, as we heard this morning in the 10 o'clock hour, we... We know that it's through hearing your word and abiding in you and letting your words abide in us that we, we reach our potential, that we bear fruit. So God, may your word work in us today as we believe it. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So Jesus arrives in the Garden of Gethsemane and then has this time of prayer. Then Judas makes his appearance, coming back. Uh, to betray him in verse 43. As I emphasized in reading it, uh, the Bible says immediately, as soon as these words went out of the mouth of Jesus, that the hour is come and the betrayer is at hand, Judas made his appearance. Judas knew exactly where to find Jesus. John wrote in his gospel these words, and Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. It was a place that the disciples went from time to time. Often the Bible says to pray. The Garden of Gethsemane. And when Judas came in verse 43, he was not alone. The Bible says that it was a great multitude that accompanied him. If you were to look in the John's Gospel and Luke's Gospel and uh, Matthew's Gospel as well as Mark's Gospel... It says that there was in this great multitude chief priests, officers, captains of the temple, elders, and John said a band, which is a word used for soldiers, a band of soldiers. And that word band would represent a group of soldiers, perhaps 500 to 600 in that group. So when Judas came, he was not alone. Hundreds of soldiers, religious people, and Judas leading them. 
They came, it says in verse 43, with swords and staves. Staves is a word that defines something, a tool made of wood. It could be a club, could be a spear. Sometimes the word stave, historically, would speak of like stocks or a shackle that you would put on a prisoner. But either way, they come, hundreds of people, and they come with these clubs and spears. John said they came with lanterns and torches and weapons. They came to get Jesus. Imagine that. Imagine this scene. Jesus has been praying. We don't know how for how long. Has all his disciples with him. And then here coming, intruding this peaceful night, this posse invading the quietness of this place to capture and arrest an unarmed man. It's quite a scene when you think about it. Where were they coming from? Verse 43 says, With him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and scribes and the elders. So those groups of people were with them, but they came from them. That means that's where they had been. And where was that? They had been with the Sanhedrin, I'm sure, with the religious leaders in the middle of the night, plotting the capture of Jesus, getting their minds together, getting their plan together, having with them not only chief priests and elders, but really the authority of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jewish community. They came from that place and they came to him. One has to wonder why they came the way they came. I wondered that. Why did they come with so many people? Why did they come with all these weapons? Why did they come with clubs and with swords? And obviously, it's because they didn't understand what was taking place. They didn't understand Jesus, number one. If they understood Jesus, they would know. If they, if they understood who he was, they would know that no amount of clubs and swords could stop him unless he just was willing to go. They didn't really understand Jesus. I think they thought in their human mind he may try to escape. He may resist. He may fight back. <laughs> when, I think of the, when I think of the 11 that were still with Jesus and Jesus, I don't look at them as being this great armed military presence that might try to overpower us. Jesus is there and Judas comes and Judas has given them this signal. This is how I'm going to identify Jesus. Now there's several things in that that we can just speculate about, but one thing we know, they, everybody didn't know what Jesus looked like, right? They didn't, wouldn't have known him. But here's another thing. Jesus was so common in his appearance that they would have to have someone point him out for them to recognize him. And so he comes to him in verses 44 and 45. He that betrayed him had given them this token saying, whoever I kiss, take him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he was come, he goes straightway immediately to him and saith, Master, Master, and kissed him. You'll never see a greater act of hypocrisy than this. Now, we've seen many acts of hypocrisy in our lives, but nothing like this. To walk up to Jesus, to call him master, which is a, a term used of respect, a teacher, a rabbi. He stands before him, calls him master while kissing him. 
and giving this appearance of respect. It's like an empty affection. This empty kiss, this empty affection is a signal for an angry mob to apprehend Jesus. That's what hypocrisy looks like. I was thinking of a passage, more than one passage, but one in particular about this in Proverbs 27. I'll read it to you. It says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. That's exactly what that was. The deceitful kiss of an enemy. Just be reminded again this morning who Judas was. Someone who had spent three and a half years with Jesus. Some who had faithfully served him. Someone who had sat at his feet and heard the great teachings of Jesus. Someone who had prayed with Jesus and heard Jesus praying. Judas was one of the twelve. He had preached the gospel. And now he's betraying Jesus to this angry mob. The more I think about this, it makes you just wonder, how could this be? How, how could a person be so deceived? How could a person be such a hypocrite? How could a person be so wrong? And yet I'm reminded of something that I've said more than a few times in my ministry, and that is this. Time has a way of exposing what's really in a person. I was just reading yesterday a lengthy article about a, one of the best-known biblical apologists that we have ever heard. A multi-million dollar ministry that people in this room, I know, listen to frequently. And it was only after he died that it was discovered that he had had many, many, many untoward relationships with women and his electronic devices showed all this filth that was a part of his, and yet people did not know him. People, they knew what he said, and what he said sounded good. What he said, people liked to hear. I mean, well known, if I called his name, many, many of you in this room, I'm sure would know his name, and yet... It was only after he was dead that the corruption of his dark life was apparent. You know, even Lucifer himself began in heaven serving the Lord, abiding in the presence of God Almighty, doing the bidding of God as a created angel, even Lucifer himself. And you know what happened? Pride corrupted him. Pride corrupted him and he fell from that place. So here we have this great hypocrite, Judas. Matthew records that Jesus said this to Judas. Friend, wherefore art thou come? Isn't it just like Jesus to call Judas a friend? You know, betrayal is a painful experience, but I don't think anything would, that you and I would ever experience would even begin to compared to what Jesus is going through here. It's an interesting word, and I want to call your attention to it in verse 44. 
where Jesus, I mean, where Judas says, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. And then notice what Judas said here in verse 44. Take him and lead him away safely. I was, I was taken by that word safely. Because we would think to take him away safely means see that he's not harmed. Take him away safely. But the word safely has another meaning, and that's the one that's intended here. And it means securely. Being in safety means to be in a secure place. Safely means take him away safely so he does not escape. Make sure he is secure. Make sure he does not escape. That's our traitor, Judas Iscariot. Hold your finger here if you wouldn't. Mark chapter 14, and I, I want to go to a passage in John, just briefly. Go to John chapter 18, and we'll come right back to Mark. But I think it's so important to read these verse, verses in John chapter 18, because we get a real sense of the power that Jesus still retained, maintained there, even when he was apprehended. In John chapter 18, verse 1 The Bible says when Jesus had spoken these words, that was the prayer he prayed in John chapter 17. When when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden, into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them. He meets this mob and says unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Wouldn't you love to have seen that? I mean, Jesus' words were so powerful that it just knocked them all to the ground. Hundreds, maybe. Wouldn't you just love to have seen that? Verse 7, then ask he them again, whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. I'm the one you're looking for, let these go their way. Let's go back to Mark's gospel. Imagine the power that Jesus still retained. Here they are thinking they're going to capture him, they're going to, they're going to hold him. Physically, they're going to uh, keep him, and yet just his words knock them all off their feet. So they, they apprehended him in verse 46, said they laid their hands, we're back in Mark 14, they laid their hands on him and took him. He, they had him in their grasp. By the way, this is what these people, this is not just a... La- a final moment of wanting to capture Jesus. For many of these people, they had followed him all over Galilee. Remember, they wanted to capture him. Even when he first 
when he very first occasion where he read in Luke chapter 4, quoting from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And Jesus read those words. And then Jesus said this in Luke 4, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And you know what the Bible says they wanted to do? They wanted to take him out and throw him down the brow of a hill. They've been wanting him dead all of his ministry. They've been just looking for an opportunity to take him out, to destroy him. And, and it says in the New Testament and other places that he escaped because his time had not yet come. But now his time has come. How could a person be so cruel? You ever think about that? How could these people be so corrupt? So How could their heart be so hardened and be so black? Corrupted by their power, really, that they wanted to kill Jesus. How would somebody want to kill Jesus? And yet... Human history teaches us that religious people have killed the followers of Christ throughout the times, all the way back to the gospel era in the time of Jesus Christ. Millions were killed by the Catholic religion. Some estimate 50 to 60 million followers of Jesus were killed by the Catholics. And then many of the Anabaptists were killed by the reformers, those who pulled out of the Catholic religion, hunted them down and killed them. I'm talking about what religion can do. And we know that the Muslim religion has killed many and is killing many, even today, followers of Jesus Christ. So this idea of someone hating the truth and hating Jesus or hating the followers of Jesus is not new. So it's his time, the time of his betrayal, the time of his sacrifice. They could not, and this is the thing I really want us to make sure we understand today, they could not have taken him had he not have surrendered himself to them. But just in case they need, he needed their help, verse 47, one of them took out a sword and made a swing at a servant of the high priest and removed his ear. Surgical procedure. Jesus answered and said to them in verse 48, Are you come out as against a thief? Are you coming to me as though I were a common criminal with swords and with staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching and you took me not. Why, you know, and we, we've, record, we've studied that for weeks and weeks, how Jesus in the temple day after day would go out away from the temple, come back and teach all day long. He said, why didn't you take me then? If you wanted to take me, why didn't you take me then? But he finishes verse 49 with a powerful confession. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. We don't know from reading here, but if you would read in John's gospel, it tells us the name of the one with the sword. Now, if we just were to have a, if we were just going to take a, a pop quiz, no time to study, uh, we're going to take a pop quiz. Which of the 11 do you think would have taken the sword to the head of the servant of the high priest? How many of you would just say, based on what you already know, I think it was probably Simon Peter. How many of you say that? 
If you raised your hand, you were right. John says it was Peter, and it even gives us the name of this servant. His name was Malchus. And so he takes off this ear. And Luke, the physician, leave it up to Luke. Luke, the doctor, the physician, gave us and only gives us this important detail that Jesus healed him and put his ear back on in place. A doctor would recognize that and think it's worthy of mentioning, don't you think? Good for, good for Peter because if he wouldn't have, Peter probably would have, they'd have to put a fourth cross out there for Peter for trying to kill the high priest's servant. So Jesus says to them in verse 48, 49, already in a moment ago, why, why are you treating me like a thief? Why did you come? Why did you send a small army to arrest me? Jesus said, according to Matthew, these words, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? You're, you're coming out here like I'm a thief, and you're going to take me away. Don't you know that if I just asked my Father, he would send multiplied thousands of angels to rescue me? Peter should have understood that. But one thing they kept overlooking is the scriptures had to be fulfilled. One of the gospels records that Jesus was bound by them. Then we have these words in verse 50. And they all forsook him and fled. Remember we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Jesus said on this very journey from the upper room to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, every one of you is going to be offended because of me. And Peter, remember what Peter said, and everybody else might, but it certainly won't be me. Jesus predicted this. And Jesus said, the words of the Old Testament prophet would be fulfilled. The shepherd will be smitten and the sheep will scatter. And verse 50 makes it absolutely clear. They all forsook him and fled. They all ran for their lives. They all left him. Mark, and Mark only, gives us this interesting record in verses 51 and 52 about a certain young man. They followed him. They followed Jesus. A certain young man having a linen cloth cast about his naked body, and the young men laid hold on him. A certain young man, singular, and the young men grabbed him, laid hold on him, and he, this certain young man, left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Mark doesn't tell us who the young man was. Some believe that the young man might have just been someone that was in the garden at that time and heard the commotion. Uh, it is believed, there's no proof of this, it is believed that this garden of Gethsemane, which was on the Mount of Olives, was a privately owned place. And maybe this young man would have been related to the owner of the garden and heard the commotion and came to see what was going on. Other people believe it might have been Mark. 
himself, the one who's authoring this, the one who's writing this, that perhaps Mark was the young man. I tend to believe that, but it's not stated in the scripture. But only Mark records this. By the way, it was not unusual for someone who wrote a book not to identify themselves as the person who was writing it. John, the beloved, writing the Gospel of John, often called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved or the disciple who laid himself on Jesus' breast. He didn't say it was him, but we know we're certain, fairly certain that it was him. We know it was him. Now, could Mark have done it? I believe he could have been this person. I think so. And I want to, I want to give you a couple of reasons why. Number one, just for, your, for sake of your uh, putting things together, in case you're not aware of this, this writer of this uh, gospel, Mark, was not one of the twelve. But he was raised in Jerusalem at the time of Christ. We know that. His family, Mark's family, was closely connected to the Lord and to the disciples and assembled with the church in Jerusalem after the resurrection of Christ. The first mention of Mark is actually in Acts 12. We're not going to turn there. But the occasion was this. James had been beheaded. James and John. John's brother James had been beheaded. This is an Acts after Jesus was resurrected. After, there was a great persecution against Christians, against the church. And when James had been beheaded, they, the Jewish community liked it so much that the king ordered Peter to be locked up too, and they put Peter in jail. And we just referred to this recently in a message. And um, Peter was miraculously delivered from that captivity. And when he left, Peter made a beeline to where Christians were praying for him. And the place that he went was the place where Mark lived. Mark's family was endeared to Christ and to the church. So it's very possible that Mark knew Jesus in his youth. He was a, he was a nephew of Barnabas, Mark was. Traveled with Barnabas and Paul in the first missionary journey. And, and just, just I'm just trying to show you, even though Mark is not a main character of the New Testament, he was sort of working and very involved behind the scenes. As a matter of fact, in 1 Peter, Peter referred to Mark with these words, Marcus, my son. So here's so Mark, who, whoever it was, this person was, Mark did live in Jerusalem. His family did live in Jerusalem. They were very familiar with Jesus and the disciples. Some people even speculate, and I'm, I'm hesitant to use speculations, but some people believe that where Jesus met with the disciples in the upper room, that that upper room could have been the home where Mark's family lived. And, that's, and I'm not basing what I believe on speculation. I'm just telling you some people believe that could have been true, and it could have been true. It could have also been true that when Judas went to find Jesus, that the first place he went was not to the garden, but the upper room where he had last seen Jesus. It could be that when he went to that upper room and found that Jesus was gone, the next place he left to go was to the garden because he thought they would be there, and he was right. But if that was true, then Mark would have been there maybe and saw when Judas left 
the upper room to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now I say all that to say, it doesn't really matter. It is an interesting incident, isn't it? Mention only this place in the Bible. I personally believe that the inclusion of this incident, at least one purpose of it, is to underscore that everyone at that time left Jesus. The 11 left him and ran for their lives, and even the one unnamed follower, whoever he was, he likewise, it says in verse 52, fled from them. Jesus would go to the cross without anyone's support. Humanly speaking, I believe that God wanted us to know this important thing. And, and, it is, and I emphasize it because it's easy for me and for you and for any of us to read over things in the Bible without really thinking about them. I believe God wanted us to know this about the sacrifice and death of Christ. He did it alone. He did it alone. He could have called for angelic support. He didn't. He could have just totally obliterated this posse with his own words. Just saying, I am he. Brought them all to the ground. But he did this voluntarily. And he did it alone. You know, all of us in our life will go through times that we feel like we're by ourselves, like no one understands. I try to put myself in the mindset of Jesus, but Jesus knew this would all happen. But imagine what it'd be like to spend three and a half years with a group of people and not one of them stayed around. Imagine what it'd be like having told them repeatedly, this is what's going to happen. After warning them, you need to pray, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. After telling them, all of you will be offended. Imagine, imagine having all, knowing that everybody you've invested your life in, of all of them, not one would truly be loyal at the time you needed them the most. And I said, we may all go through difficult times when we felt alone, but most of us have never been alone. We've had a wife, a friend, a husband, a mom, a dad, somebody that would be there that may not fully understand, but at least they would be there. And we can know this if we're saved, we're never completely alone because he said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. The one who was forsaken by every acquaintance he had said, mark it down, I will never forsake you. Paul used very similar words in 2 Timothy when he said, writing, not embellishing, not exaggerating, but writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, No man stood with me 
but all men forsook me. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me. He will always stand with us. The one who no one would stand with will always stand with us. Aren't you glad about that today? He's not a fair weather friend. He is indeed a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. I have nothing in my heart today but thanksgiving and praise to Jesus for what he went through. I know people are misunderstand and are mixed up and confused. Again, I've said this numerous times in the last few weeks. They want to blame Judas. They want to blame the Roman soldiers. They want to blame the Sanhedrin. They want to blame the disciples. But the reality is, Jesus was here because it was determined and destined that he would be here. And he was alone because that's the way he had it planned. And he voluntarily, willingly, not because of their coercion, not because of their intimidation, not because of their weaponry, but because he had an appointment on Golgotha's Hill that no one could stop him from making. And he did that for you. And he did that for me. And if you are sitting here today and you don't know him, as I often remind us, he wants to know you. He wants to save you. He wants to forgive you. But he won't force himself upon you. Right now today, you could accept him and say, I want him in my life. I need him. Let's bow our heads together. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed today, would you just join me in thanking the Lord for all that these verses hold in revelation and revealing of the Savior that we love. And would you think seriously for a moment today if you don't know that you know him, if you don't know that you've truly been born again, would you think about what he did for you? What he went through for you? What he chose to experience for your sake and my sake and the sake of a fallen human race? He loves you today. He wants to save you. He wants to be not only your Savior, your Lord, but your friend. What would keep you from coming to Him today? Our Father, as we read these words today and as we just give our minds... To this great event 
or events that contributed to this great sacrifice. We're amazed at your love. We're amazed at what you would do for us. We're amazed at your grace. God, help us to love you more and appreciate you more. Forgive us, Lord, if we ever take for granted the price of our salvation. 